Welcome, uh, Kate, uh, from, uh, from Podcast by the Bay, uh, Bay City Communication. Um, uh, Kate runs, um, runs the program there for Hip Housing. Hip Housing has been around some 48 years. Um, and Hip, Hip Housing, it, when I did a little, a little date on it, that was 1972 when Hip Housing started, and I was just graduating from high school. Welcome, Kate, by podcast by the Bay, Bay City Communications. Um, where are you from? Are you from around this area? I grew up in San Jose and then went to school down in the Central Coast. So, But I've been up in San Mateo County for 30 years plus. So I feel like a San Mateo County local. Okay. Uh, Kate is executive director for Hip Housing, which is called Human Investment Project. Uh, she studied at the University of San Francisco. I think that's where you got your master's degree. That's right. Your, your master's degree was in what, public service? or? It's in a nonprofit administration. So it's like an MBA with slightly different accounting. Okay. You also attended and studied at UC Santa Barbara. In Santa Barbara, what was your undergraduate in? So I actually have two degrees, two undergraduate degrees. One's in uh, communication studies and the other is in sociology. And the sociology degree was actually an accident. All my electives ended up being major classes for sociology. So at the end, I ended up with these two degrees. And at the time, if you would have told me that I would be doing affordable housing development, I'd be like, what is that? But it turns out that communications and sociologies are a perfect foundation for the kind of community housing work that I do now. Well, you know, just to share a little bit with you, my undergraduate was from San Francisco State, and it was the first undergraduate that they gave you a degree in social work, um, which oh, is under the sociology department. I did some probation and counseling um, for a short period of time, and then I somehow ended up in a career of real estate. Uh, mm -hmm. So the journey is the journey, and sometimes we're not sure how we get there. When, how long have you worked for uh, uh, hip housing? I started in 2011, so nine years. And before that, I had worked for another housing organization called Rebuilding Together that provides uh, home repairs to low-income homeowners. So in total, I've been about 10, 11 years in housing, um, and it's been an interesting passion. Now, you currently live in Redwood City. Mm -hmm. Okay. The population approximately in San Mateo County is around 727,000 before our next census. So I'm assuming it's going to be around 760,000. How many people uh, do you impact with hip housing? I mean, um, obviously, your hip housing, I know on your, uh, you have some revenues, some coming in somewhere between three to $4 million a year. Uh, you, you've got assets of somewhere for $15 million. And I know you're, you really rely on donations. Can you, can you tell our audience um, where are these donations coming from? And then you can then explain the component of hip housing because there's two parts to it. Yeah. So there's a lot in that question. Um, we actually serve all of San Mateo County, so not just Redwood City. And in total, we help to house about 1,400 people. But we impact 
nearly 4,000 every year because we do um, a tremendous amount of information and referral services through our front office. So people often call us because they don't know where else to go for housing information, especially affordable housing information. There's really no one place in the county where you can go to get information. So people come to us. So we have a very robust information referral service. Um, but in terms of how many people we actually house, it's about 1,400. And we do that in two different kinds of approaches. So we started as your classic social service agency, right? With social service programs, we were founded with the uh, intention of helping seniors. It very quickly became clear that what seniors needed was housing, and this was back in 1972, through about 1976. So we launched a home sharing program, which helped to match people who have space in their home with people who need an affordable place to live. And that seemed like a very practical solution, especially for seniors who can often be isolated. So if you can match senior to senior, that's great. Or if you can match a senior to a younger family, then you have intergenerational connections. So that program is, is our flagship program. That's really what we're most known for. And that, like you said, is funded primarily by donations, but not exclusively by donations. Um, we have a very robust, what I call, fundraising pie um, but to get back to the programs for a moment, so what we discovered about home sharing was that it's great for a single person or a couple or maybe a single parent with one child, but it wasn't terrific for families. A lot of people don't want to open their homes to an entire family. So we started a second program, and that's called our self-sufficiency program, and that is for families, very low-income families, who are either homeless or at risk of homelessness, but have an aspiration. They know they want to do something. They have a passion, a goal. They want to be in school. They want to break that cycle of poverty, and once they kind of can show us what their plan is. We will help them <clears throat> with housing. And in exchange, they have to stay in school. They have to attend life skills workshops. They get banked for the first time. We counsel them on trauma, which can oft often be a barrier to their success because many families in that situation have experienced quite a bit of trauma. So again, that's another kind of classic social service program with intensive case management and a lot of coaching along the way for those families. So right. that's... That's kind of the social service side. Can I ask, um, can I ask, can I ask a question so right. we can get the audience going? Let's say there's a senior, and, and an interesting statistic, 60% of the seniors that live in San Mateo and Santa Clara County own their own homes. So we've got a big market of potential seniors to rent a room. Mm -hmm. So how from inception, let's say, for instance, you get a phone call into hip housing and somebody uh, is a senior and they're saying, hey, listen, I'd like to rent a room. What happens at that inception? What do you do? Well, it's changed a little bit with COVID. Um, it used to be that everybody came into the office, those seeking housing and those um, who had housing to share. So it doesn't have to be a senior. Now the program has really grown and expanded. So we don't have an income requirement for the program, nor do we um, have an age requirement for the program. Everybody's welcome to come and see if the program might work for them. Typically, it's going to be, you know, pretty low-income folks who really just can't afford an apartment on their own. Um, and seniors, like you said, are the, the most uh, productive pool of available rooms because they tend to be more house-rich and cash-poor, right? And they have available rooms for families that have already matured and left the home. So we estimate there's about 60,000 rooms available in San Mateo County, and that was based on some work that we did with some Stanford students a few years ago um, to kind of determine, you know, what is the capacity? 
capacity for the program. Not everybody's going to want to rent their rooms. So even though those rooms are out there, it doesn't mean they're necessarily available. But even a small subset of those rooms becomes important. So People would typically come in, they get interviewed by a case manager, depending where they are geographically, they're assigned to a case manager to work with them. We have a very dynamic database that we have developed and maintained on our own that helps to find people with similar preferences. So in that intake interview for both parties, we would find out what kind of arrangement do they want? What kind of living arrangement? What location do they want to be in? What can they pay? Do they have dogs? Do they smoke? You know, any of those kinds of things. And then we go back to the database. We plug that all in and we try to determine based on preferences, who might be a good match for each other. We don't make the match, but instead we then provide referrals to, to parties that we think might be good matches based on their preferences. They interview each other. When they find someone that they, that they think is going to be a good match, then everybody comes back into the office and we do something called a living together agreement. And that's where they work with one of our counselors to help determine what are going to be the rules of the house. How much is rent going to be? When is it going to be paid? What are the quiet hours? How many shelves in the refrigerator do you get? You know, all those things to help make the match successful, to identify all of those questions or as many of the questions and preferences up front as possible. In that living together agreement, we also do um, a discussion around what happens if it doesn't work, because it doesn't always work. Sometimes it just doesn't match, right? Or they, they thought it was going to be great and it's not, or for whatever reason, they have to end that partnership. So we talk about what is the best way to do that so that both parties are really clear on what happens when the, the match is going to end. And then both parties are both available to come back to the program and get rematched if that's appropriate. So all along the way, you have a case manager who's trained in conflict resolution, who is your advocate. If there's a challenge around rent or, or personalities, we try to help to mitigate some of that. So you're never in it alone. And that's really what differentiates us than, say, a Craigslist. Uh, and the service is free. So we do you, do you create do you uh, create a lease for them or a month to month tenancy? What do you what, is there a document that the uh, uh, owner owner will sign? Yeah, that living together agreement acts as your lease because in there it does identify how much rent will be and when it will be paid. Now, is, it, is that something on your website? So, that, you know, let, let's say, for instance, there's a lot of seniors out there that maybe want to rent a room, but they want to see the agreement or what, you, what you've got. So, and do these um, people are aware, do they have to report their rent that they're collecting or do you kind of leave that up? to the owner of the property. So say for instance, somebody rents their house and they rent a room for $600 or $700, that's income into the owner of it. it uh, do you tell them that they have an obligation to let the uh, tax people know, or is that just between the, the two parties? So once again, we don't make the match. They make it themselves. We just facilitate the match. Okay. So what they do on the other end is up to them. We do advise them to talk with their tax preparer about, you know, how the income affects them. But it doesn't affect whether or not they can be a part of our program. You know, having rental income that boosts your income is not going to be a deterrent from whether you can use our program because we don't have any income requirements. But they need to, you know, they need to take responsibility on their side. It's just like when you give a donation in kind to an agency, a nonprofit, the nonprofit doesn't determine the value of that, that donation. That's up to the donor to, to, uh, to determine that value and present that to their tax preparer. We don't do that. So that, that is 
typical in the nonprofit sector. It's, it's up to the individual to declare that, not, not up to the, the nonprofit. Okay, why don't we talk a little bit about your funding? Where is predominantly your funding coming from? Is it coming from uh, Lions, Rotary? Is it coming from San Mateo County? Where are you getting your donations? I know that's public information, first of yeah, all, yeah, and, and, yeah. and it's on the website because you're a nonprofit. But for the audience, for the people out here, can you kind of tell them what's been able to help main, maintain hip housing for all these years? So typically, affordable housing programs and development has been the purview of government, right? That's the relationship. It's too expensive for the nonprofit sector and for donors to take on that responsibility. So when I first started at Hip Housing, we were about 60% funded by government funding. But we had some foundations, we have individual givers, and we had a, a small event that we did annually. And that kind of supplemented the additional um, income that we needed. Now, my goal was to get off of government funding because it's unreliable. You know, you just never know from year to year what's going to be available. We lost redevelopment agencies in 2011, um, or I think it was 2011, um, and that was a great source of, of funding for our program. Now, that said, we are supported by all 21 municipalities in, in the county. So whether it be through community development block grants, which five cities or four cities plus the county um, have access to, or it's through their general fund. Cities really like our program because it uses existing housing stock to create a new housing opportunity and it helps them to meet their goals of providing affordable housing. So all of the cities have us in their housing element as a way to provide fair housing choice, but they also provide us with some amount which is reasonable for their community and it varies among each of the different cities. But we're very proud to say that all 21 municipalities do support us. That said, Government funding now only accounts for between 25 and 30 percent of our funding. Um, we get a, an enormous amount of funding from individuals who like what we do, who have benefited from what we do, or whose parents or, or loved ones have benefited from the program. We also, our event has grown quite a bit, so we do get a larger percentage of our income comes from, from event than it used to. We've had tremendous support from foundations, especially in recent years. They it's kind of become well-established that housing is equated to health. So health organizations have stepped up to, to support the work that we do. Um, local foundations that have always been really strong in the area support the work that we do. So we get, we get very, very good foundation support. But to be honest, the, the support that, that we as an organization are, are most proud of is in addition to our social service work, we also have a housing development side. So we own and operate 18 properties, and then we do third-party property management for other organizations, nonprofits who have affordable housing. And while it doesn't provide a tremendous amount of income, certainly not enough for any market rate developer to be interested in, it does provide us with some income. And that income, we're then able to fold over to our program side so that we can support all of our operating costs ourselves. Can we regress for a moment, and in, in this is just probably just before you started. In 2008, we went through a deep real estate recession throughout the country. One of the narratives on financing before is each individual city um, would provide either financing or they would be in conjunction with the county, uh, and they would actually have housing stock. Each city, as you know, that does not necessarily say they're going to build 10% affordable housing, 15%. It's 
it's usually city by city. I happen to live in a city that, that we require a 20% in foster city between 15 and 20% affordable housing. What I want to extract here is the way financing has changed. Now, most of the cities um, on the peninsula, in San, at least in San Mateo County, provide that money or have that money in what we call the Heart Foundation. Uh, and I know you're familiar with Heart. So the thing has changed a little bit. And what I want you to address is a real important question to me. We're not building affordable housing, number one, on the peninsula. We're building high-end rentals, okay? We're backed up against the wall. You're backed up against the wall, and so are the workforce out there. How can we do a better job? I'm, and then, then we'll go back into the hip housing where you're doing the developments because you've been doing those for a while. And I'm very proud to say, I know quite a few people. I think Mark was on your board for, for a long time. I forgot Mark's last name, but he, a matter of fact, I think he was the executive director um, probably before you too. I'm, I'm trying to. Oh, you're talking about Mark Moulton? Yes. Mark. He was, he was executive director at heart. Okay. Yeah. Um, so why don't, we, why don't we talk a little bit about what do you think of the, what we're doing here on the peninsula? We're not, we're not building affordable housing. Uh, we're just building high-end rentals. Well, let's, let's back that up a little bit. So it used to be that the best way for cities to help to fund affordable housing was through redevelopment agencies. That's what most cities used as their pool of steady financing um, tools. That went away. Now, Hart is a player in affordable housing finance, but that's not the predominant way that we get our financing. Um, we still have access as affordable housing um, developers to special loans through the cities, through the state, that allow for financing to happen. There's been a lot of movement at the state level to provide additional funding since the redevelopment agencies went away, and that's really been in the last couple of years. Um, we are sandwiched in this area, right? We've got water on both sides. We've got about 70% of our county is preserved land that we don't want to touch. Nobody wants to touch it. We're all very proud of that land. And we've got San Francisco and Santa Clara County on either side of us. So what we end up with is a very narrow band of land that we can develop. In addition, we have an abundance of high paying jobs and that's not going to change. We have an influx of, of people who can pay really really high rents. So people who can't pay really high rents, our service workers, our, our educators, the, the folks that, that help us in our homes, those folks are just inherently shut out because there really are no market forces here to help create affordable housing. We've got a limited amount of land and we have a lot of folks that can pay and, uh, quite a bit. Hold on just a minute. Um, so we're always going to have a struggle to create affordable housing. Land values are just so incredibly high. So to purchase land and then build on that land um, is extraordinarily expensive. So it's not unreasonable that you have to charge high rents in order to be able to, to pay back what it costs to build. Let me, ex let me extract that. Let me extract that for a moment as a 40 year realtor, I agree it's the land value that's more expensive and that's predominantly at least 50 to 60% before we build the house. So the narrative is not working. Um, and, and I know you know that because you're expressing that now, if you had a magic wish, how should we do that? We have to, we have to step outside of the box somehow and solve this problem. What would you think? What, 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 so, what would you imagine? That's exactly where I was going actually then. And I'm glad you brought that up because that, 
so what has to happen? Okay, A, we have to use what we've already got more efficiently. And we have to either incentivize people to be able to build affordable um, or we have to, you know, create opportunities for affordable. So one of the things that many cities, but not all cities, but many cities do is something called inclusionary housing. So whenever a developer is building market rate housing, they're required to set aside a certain percentage of units to be affordable. Um, Not every city does it. For many years, um, the idea of inclusionary housing was actually held, held up in the court system in California. Um, it was equated to rent control, and that was a big issue. So cities stopped making that requirement oh, for probably five to eight years. They just would, well, they didn't want to touch it at all because they didn't know how the courts were going to ultimately find, uh, come down on, on that decision. So in about 2014, it turned around. Um, That was called the Palmer decision. It turned around, and now most cities are trying to update their policies to allow for inclusionary housing because it was determined that it is one of the only ways that we can provide affordable, um, especially in areas like ours. So that's a really great opportunity. That's set aside within other buildings that are being built. The trick is, you know, for market or market rate developers really don't know much about affordable housing. They don't know how much the rent should be. They don't know how much the individual should make. They don't know how to annually income certify those folks. And they don't know how to report back to the cities that they're in compliance. So one of the things that we've done is we've started a compliance program where we will help market rate developers to make sure that they get it right. And in addition to doing that, we can help them maintain a wait list of appropriately income folks so that they know where to find a pool of good candidates that income qualifies. So that's going to recapture not only the folks that fell out of compliance during those years of the Palmer decision, but it's also going to make sure that the new units coming online are in compliance and they remain in compliance. So that, that is a, a whole new uh, portion of, of affordable housing that we can look forward to coming online. What most of the big cities doing development do have in, in inclusionary requirements. Um, then there's quite a bit happening also in terms of um, understanding. The county launched something called Home for All um, a few years back. And the conversation and the political will Um, that has changed dramatically since the county really initiated this initiative. So we're seeing a lot more cities and the county looking at, well, what land do they own that they could make available for affordable housing? How can they make connections between developers and nonprofit agencies to see if maybe an impact fee can be used? So lots of neat things starting to happen. Well, let's, let's talk. I went, I attended the leadership conference last year up at the college of San Mateo um, and interviewed people from Facebook and Google and uh, board of supervisors. One of the things that we keep talking about is density housing. Uh, currently in the city of San Mateo uh, coming up in this November election, uh, they're going to have um, two propositions on housing. Uh, one of them I think is leading towards a little bit higher density, which would be near the corridor transportation areas that would be down towards the train. What, what's your position on density housing? Um, and obviously we're talking about the limited resources that we have is land, um, is yeah. really land. I mean, density has to be the conversation because we can't spread out. We, can't, we have no, no additional buildable land and we don't want to touch our preserved land. So if we're going to provide housing that's going to keep our service workers local, that's going to keep our community, you know, eclectic and interesting and artful, we're going to have to really readdress the, 
the zoning that allows for density. Um, it's very controversial. Lots of people think it's terrible, but the, the actuality is that the buildings and the architecture that's being proposed along corridors, transit corridors, and the incentives provided by the state to build along transit corridors um, really are going to make a beautiful boulevard for us. So, I mean, essentially we're talking about El Camino Boulevard that also borders on the Caltrain and in the North County with, with BART. Um, I think it's, I think it's fantastic. You know, if we can make that, make that work, make it aesthetically agreeable to the communities where they are. It allows for people who do have their single family homes to not be compromised in it, but it allows also young workers to live on transit that re reduces the, the transportation issues that we also have. Well, I always, I always ask the one question, there is no study on quarter transportation areas that actually people that buy or rent near the corridor transportation area actually do use public transportation. Um, I will say Bay Meadows did a very unique thing with some of their condos where they said that you, that you either had to do ride share or that you could only have so many parking spaces. How can we improve that? Because obviously we're right now with the COVID-19 we're having problems with the Caltrains and the, you know, San Francisco willing to contribute to that sales tax. Um, so again, I'm, I'm asking you to take that magic wand in your hand and tell me what you think as a housing expert, what can we do to improve our public transportation or to get people to take public transportation? Well, I don't think that, I mean, I'm not an expert in how to improve public transportation. That's not, I mean, transportation and housing are often combined into a similar conversation, but I am not an expert in that. But I do know that we'd much rather put our dollars into housing units than into parking. We'd rather house people than cars. So reduced parking requirements is a huge piece of really making sure that people try to use the, the uh, available transportation to them. You know, what we're going to do post-COVID, I mean, that, that's a whole new dynamic, and no one really knows how that's all going to look. So I, I can't really speak to that. But I can say the political will to, to allow for reduced parking, to incentivize developments by giving them entitlement perks to when they do things that are, you know, zip cars and to provide transit passes, to do things like um, making sure that, that the parking ratios are small. There, there are things that can, that can be done. Um, and if the proposals that come in have those, those bullet points, that those pr proposals are weighted um, more positively than those that don't have those kinds of... Uh, well, I want to share, and I think you already know that we need to, to somehow connect our public transportation system. The only thing we have currently is called a clipper card. And I, I do have a clipper card. I don't know if you do. They're nice to use, but we somehow have to find a way to intertwine our public transportation. Now, I, I realize that Caltrans and BART, they're all fighting for the same federal and state tax dollar, and that's all about ridership. Um, that's how they get their money. So some of it is ridership. How can we, and, and I know a while back, they, they had a, a few years back, they had a, an issue with uh, not necessarily efficiently reporting the ridership. How can we get those agencies? And again, I know I'm, you're in the housing, but yeah, in, in yeah. order to solve the housing, we need to, to kind of work on that public transportation. So 
Again, I'm asking you to pull a magic wand of yours and just give us your opinion on what, what you think we can do to get those transit things. Um, we at Podcast by the Bay have interviewed probably at least 30 people, whether assembly people, senators, and they're all scratching their head. How can we make a better public transportation you know, I don't, I don't have a magic wand for that. I don't really do transportation in the same way that, that some of those other folks that you've interviewed have. Um, I do know that it's important for affordable housing to be close to public transportation. Um, that, that's a given. Most people who are lower income really don't want to have cars and they don't want the expense of the cars. And there are studies out there. The APA has several studies out there that actually talk very much about um, how people in transit-oriented, low-income people in transit-oriented developments use transportation. And the, the numbers are quite powerful, actually. Can, um, we, can we, for, for, for the audience, and, and this is really interesting, we use the word low-income, and I want to extract that from, from your vocabulary a little bit, because San Mateo County, we do have low-income, but to the audience, they might not realize that low-income, a family of three, um, low income could be 110,000 a year. So can we kind of extract what, what people are you coming with? Are you coming with people that are just making 20 or 30,000 a year and that 20 or 30 could be up to 120? What kind of client base do you have? Where, where are the income range is coming from? Are you predominantly really low income or are they all over the board? So income is based on federal standards uh, HUD determines what is low income for your area. So what they do is they look at what is the average median income. That's called AMI. Average median income, depending on where you live, is different. What we have here on the peninsula is going to be different than what's in the Central Valley. It's going to be way different than what's in a different state like Arizona or, or Idaho, for example. So when you say, you know, a family of four can, you know, have an income up to 120, but think about what it costs to live here. So what that what HUD is saying is that anybody, and, and it's broken down by family size and income. So it's a, and it's complete household income. So to qualify as low income, you have to earn less than eighty percent of what the average income would be for your area. And HUD tells us that on a quarterly basis what that number looks like. And based on what is earned in this area and what it takes to survive in this area, a family of four at about $120,000 is still 80% of, of what's the average for our area. So there are categories below that. It starts at 80. There's a 60% category of 50 and a 30. And each one of those categories has different, each city has a different requirement to meet, to house people in those categories based on what their population looks like. And that's taken from census data, which is why the census is so important. Everybody's got to, to complete their census. But um, so for us in our properties, um, on the property side, all 18 of our properties are deed restricted. And the regulatory agreements that come with that from the cities that often help to finance those properties, they help us determine what the affordability levels are. Is it going to be at 80%, 60, 50, or 30? Um, and it often has to do with how does it pencil out over the long run? Can we make the rents work at 30%? 
but if not, can we make them work at 50? Can we make them work at 60? So once you get to 80%, though, here, here's the kicker, right? If you're making 82% of AMI, you're not really making that much more money, but now you no longer qualify as low income. And that's a real challenge because it, in our housing, for example, if somebody starts out at 60% and they continue to better themselves and work hard and they jump to 80% and then they get that next raise and it takes them to 82%, they're no longer eligible as, as low-income tenants. And as a result, as the owner of the property, we are charged property tax for the portion of the building that they occupy. So that means that our costs go up. And the only way that we can continue to provide affordable housing is with that property tax exemption. It's key, key, key to being able to keep rents. Let, let's, let's talk about the distinction. I know how HIP works. I want you to talk about a couple of more recent projects in HIP housing. And, and when I want you to talk about not just the rental aspect of it, but the home ownership, because HIP housing has done home ownership too. So can we talk a little bit about both? Because I think what you're what, what we're talking about right now is hip housing owning it and keeping below market rents or within the medium of eighty percent. So let's talk about the ownership. That, let me let me just qualify. I'm so we work at all different levels on the property side, on the program side, um, and it, that's from eighty percent and below. Um, and I would say that the majority of our tenants um, are going to fall at about the fifty percent. 60 to 50%, um, but we have some on either end. On the program side, the majority of our tenants run between very low and extremely low. So they're going to be 50 to 30% of AMI. They're the, the lowest income earners in our, in our community. So, you know, combined, I would say we, we probably rank right about 50 to 60% of AMI. So we're at low to very low for most of our, our work, except for home sharing, which can, and well, SSP is extremely low. How, how deep how deep is that list? I, I know I'm very familiar with Section 8, and as you realize, because rents have gone extraordinarily high. Matter of fact, I had a, a um, single mother uh, that had a Section 8 voucher, and um, she basically just started a job. Uh, and the voucher was for $4,000 a month. So it seems like um, right now it, it, it's a pivotal time, but a very challenging time. And, and obviously, we take applications for people with Section 8, but some of the people that they're giving the money to don't even have jobs. So it, 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 it seems like there's a, a rather different challenge out there. And I don't know if you've come across uh, these challenges, too. So in most cases, in order to be eligible for housing, you have to have source of income, right? So you have to have some income. Maybe it's SDI and combined with a voucher, if you have a disability, for example, and then the voucher helps you to keep your housing. Not all affordable housing is Section 8 housing. Section 8 comes in two forms. An individual can have their own voucher or a property can be given a contract for Section 8. Of our 18 properties, only five have a Section 8 contract on them. Um, so those properties, people pay 30% of their income, and that's, that's the max that they pay um, is 30% of their income. And those folks are going to be extremely low income. So all of the folks that end up in that building come as a referral from the county, from the housing authority, who vets them to ensure that they are extremely low, meeting the income qualifications of a Section 8 property. 
most of our properties and most of our units are not Section 8. Um, they're just individual units that we rent. Sometimes people come with a voucher, and that just means that that contributes to the rent, but it typically doesn't pay their entire rent. So they have to have an additional source of income. Um, okay, so can you tell us, I want to go back to the question, can you tell us approximately how many people come reach out to you for help on a yearly basis? Is that 2,000, 3,000, 5,000? So we get about 4,000 calls a year. Um, and we house about 1,400, and some of those are the same people year after year, and, but many of them are new. People leave and, and come into the area. Um, so of those, I don't know what the percent, percentage of Section 8 is, but it, it's a limited, the county has a limited number of Section 8 vouchers and a limited number of contracts that they can provide. So it's not the sort of panacea that people might think it is it's a very limited program before we wrap up i kind of want to go into into in the, the last part of it and that's the home ownership portion that hip housing can you talk about at least one or two projects where you've actually put people and they have some home ownership and how that home ownership program works well you know we actually don't do home ownership so okay. we're entirely rental um, but what I think is really interesting about the work that we're doing now is looking for cross-sector partnerships. With redevelopment agencies gone and land really at a premium, you know, how, how can we create housing? We're never going to be able to build enough, right? So we've got to have special programs that incentivize developers and, and others to, to do affordable housing. So we've had a couple of really exciting things happen recently. Um, some cities require impact payments for both commercial and residential developers. So let's say you're a market rate developer and you're building a commercial building and you have to pay a big impact fee to the city in support of affordable housing. That's just part of their fee structure for your entitlements. Well, a lot of developers get very frustrated by that. They're like, well, first of all, they don't want to pay the fee. But more importantly, oftentimes those fees go into accounts that take a long time to get used because they're aren't a lot of projects that come their way. There aren't a lot of development projects. And once they get that money, it has to go through a competitive process to be able to allocate it, which means you need expert staff. You need to have more than one applicant applying. You need to have a, a variety of things in place. It can take a long time and be quite expensive for cities to allocate that impact fee. So they're looking, cities now are looking for alternative ways to use that, that money to get projects to come online. So, uh, Redwood City, um, uh, who has been a very strong partner of ours, actually approached us and said, look, we've got a developer building a commercial building. Um, he doesn't want to give us the fee. We really don't want the fee. We'd rather see it used right away. Can you talk to them? So what we ended up doing was something called an alternative affordable housing plan. So as that commercial project went through entitlements to get built, we went right alongside of them and said, instead of writing that million-dollar check to the city, can we write a million-dollar check to an escrow account that would allow HIP housing to acquire an existing property, deed-restrict it as affordable, and lease it permanently as an affordable housing unit, taking an existing building that already exists, that's being sold anyway, but turning it into affordable housing. And the city loved that idea. I think, so, you, did that pro I think you did that project recently in San Carlos on Laurel Street. Isn't that right? There was a project of... I think that was housing. Is that that's, that's a new project that we're doing right now. There's a, it's not on Laurel, it's on Cherry, but it's right off of Laurel. So we own a six-unit building. There was a vacant 
uh, building next door that the city was in the process of trying to acquire. Um, they now have site control of that adjacent lot. So we're going to combine that lot and we're going to turn that six unit into 24 units as a new build in, in San Carlos. And that's a pretty exciting partnership too. That's been a long time in the works. It's been about 10 years in the works. So that, that's an exciting one. But an, an additional one that I think is really worth mentioning, um, another developer building a large, large, both residential, commercial, and, uh, and retail development in Redwood City wanted to find a different way to use their impact fee. So the city, again, partnered us with this private developer to talk with them about what the, what the possibilities might be. So what they want to do with their impact fees, they're actually in a much better position because they have a lot more resources and leverage, and they have a lot of expertise in building, which housing does not. We typically acquire existing properties. And they said, look, we want to build a brand new building. And we're going to take this, this one site right on El Camino, very close to transit, and we're going to you know, it's a, it's a vacant uh, uh, auto mechanic shop. It hasn't, there's not been anybody in there for quite a while. They had the resources to acquire the land. They're going to use that land to build 39 brand new units in an affordable building. But they needed an affordable housing partner, both to help them with getting property tax exemptions so they could keep the rents low, and also to provide them with the expertise on the property management side, while also just helping them to understand what should the build look like? What kinds of things need to be in an affordable housing project that might be different from a regular market rate building? Do you need case management facilities? What, how, how should the units look? How should they be laid out? What kind of services need to be available? So we're partnering with the developer um, in the build of 39 brand new units that didn't exist before in the city. And that is very much a public-private um, social sector partnership that is new to, to the housing world forever it's been dependent primarily on government funding and government tools. But now private industry is looking for ways to get creative. And I think that is the future. It's too much for any one sector to solve the affordable housing crisis we have here on their own. But together, public, private, nonprofit, when we work together, we're, we're building new kinds of networks that allow for conversations and allow for creative opportunities to build housing. And I would really encourage all cities across the county to make sure that their language in their governance documents allows them the flexibility to use impact fees um, creatively to partner um, commercial, residential, and um, affordable housing together in, in ways that haven't been done in the past. Kate, on behalf of podcast, by the way, we want to thank you for being a dedicated person and the executive director of HIP Housing. And they're very fortunate to have you. I appreciate your enthusiasm and your energy. Keep up the thank good you. work. Thank you. All right. Thank podcast. you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Podcast by the Bay. You can contact us by email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. Podcast by the Bay is a production of Bay City Communications and is sponsored by Liberty Realty. Liberty Realty, serving the peninsula and surrounding areas since 1986 for all your real estate needs www.liberty-realtyinvestments.com
Bay.com. All material and content is property of Podcast by the Bay, but does not necessarily reflect the views of Podcast by the Bay. You can follow us on Twitter at Podcast by the Bay as our handle or on Facebook, facebook.com slash podcast by the bay. And remember, you can listen to any of our episodes anytime on any podcast site. Until next time, stay tuned. Oh, <laughs>